Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 276, Allyship Fundamentals. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And our guest today is the only guest who is part of this series on Jews and the trans experience who himself does not identify as trans. Our guest today, Mike Moskowitz, is the Scholar-in-Residence for Trans and Queer Jewish Studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue. What's particularly interesting about Mike Moskowitz being in this position is that he is an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. In fact, you could argue that he is three times an ultra-Orthodox rabbi because he has three ordinations from different ultra-Orthodox rabbinic seminaries, including Jerusalem's Mir Yeshiva and the famous Beit Midrash Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey. As the scholar-in-residence for trans and queer Jewish studies, Mike Moskowitz studies, writes, and teaches on trans issues and Jewish sources, creating a body of work that is used as a resource all over the world. We had an amazing opportunity to work with him in March when Judaism Unbound and Jewish Live were convening sponsors of the Trans Jews Are Here convening that took place at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah. Mike Moskowitz is the author of a book called Textual Activism, which is a collection of his essays, articles, and speeches about the intersection of rabbinic texts and radically progressive Jewish values. He is also a co-editor with previous Judaism Unbound guest and senior rabbi of Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, Sharon Kleinbaum, of a recently published book called Chaver Up, 49 Rabbis Explore What It Means to Be an Ally Through a Modern Jewish Lens. Mike Moskowitz occupies an unusual position in the Jewish world, but truly an important one and an unbound one, if we may say so. And we are so excited to jump into these questions of what true allyship really means, as well as what it really means to hold traditional Jewish values. So, Mike Moskowitz, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So, I'd love to start with a question that I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but basically, how did an ultra-Orthodox rabbi come to be the scholar-in-residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at a progressive Judaism synagogue that is uh, actually the largest LGBT synagogue in the, in the world, and I think one of the first? So, how did that happen? Rabbi Kleinbaum and I met in the back of a police wagon where we both got arrested for civil disobedience over DACA. It was in D.C. It was about three and a half years ago. And in the back of this police wagon, we are all in handcuffs. And there's five male identifying folks on one side. There's a machitza, a metal partition in the middle of this police van. And then five uh, female identifying rabbis on the other side. And Rabbi Kleinbaum says, you know, we're a bunch of rabbis. Does anyone have any Torah to share? Uh, Torah to share. And, you know, it's a captive audience for all in handcuffs. And I had just written an article <laughs> on gender and clothing. And so I shared these thoughts with her. And through the course of the afternoon where uh, we were put into this massive warehouse and also separated by gender, she uh, got to hear a little bit about my story, how I was a rabbi in Harlem and at Columbia and uh, was now working at a deli in Lakewood, New Jersey. I'd taken off the day to get arrested. And she and, and CBST got together and created this position for me because uh, I wasn't able to find a job in the Haredi world anymore because of the positions that I had taken very publicly. Um, and those positions for me came about 
uh, as it does for most people, as a function of proximity. Someone in my family transitioned. Uh, I had a student and a congregant uh, who had transitioned, and there really wasn't, in, uh, you know, kind of a Haredi and also Orthodox representation within the rabbinate to create um, a sacred space for people to be who they are without having to choose between a gender identity and a religious identity. And so I kind of started uh, occupying that space in the void. And CBST showed up as, as my ally to, to give me the, the platform and the agency to be able to do that. And it's been a fantastic relationship that uh, I think has been surprisingly simple. Uh, it actually mm-hmm. lacks the complexity of what I think most people would assume would be an awkwardness of being in both of those spaces. Because I think CBST in particular frames Judaism as being in relationship with tradition and God, it really allows for the commonality of individuality where we're all struggling, we're all journeying, we're all exploring, we're all experimenting. And in that way, we're all equal. This quality that we actually see in a lot of our listeners on Judaism Unbound is that a lot of them are people who are converting to Judaism, for example. And in the early years, I was really surprised to encounter people that were converting to Judaism, but they really listened to us and we're talking about changing Judaism. And it's like, I was always taught that the people who are converting are the people who are the most into it. You know, the people that they're converting because they really like it the way it is. And it turns out that it's taken me a few years to learn that that's not really the case. So I'm curious about the story of a person who comes to be ultra-Orthodox and then becomes basically a, a form of a dissident. And how does that happen? Sure. So borrowing language from the queer community, I was assigned secular and then kind of came out as a Haredi in high school. Uh, for those who knew me when I was a kid, they, they told me they always knew uh, mm. that this is who I am. And that language, I think, is actually very resonant with both people who transition and also people who choose to be Jewish. That the Zoya, for example, the mystical work says that we don't talk about the convert as the non-Jew who converted, but we say the Gershonist guy or the convert who converted. Because really the, the root of their soul was by the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And so to the person who's returned, the Baal Tshuva. I remember my first Shabbos in Richmond, Virginia in the mid-90s. And uh, I went up to the rabbi, introduced myself. Another rabbi came up and said, oh, so this is the new Baal Tshuva. I didn't know what that meant. So walking back to this other rabbi's house, I said, what was that Hebrew phrase? And he said, uh, it means the master of the return, the one who's kind of perfected repentance. And I thought to myself at the time, what a low bar, right? I've been keeping Shabbos now for two hours and I'm already like an expert. (laughs) But it speaks to this idea that a person can be assigned one way, whether it's religion, whether it's religiosity, whether it's gender. And then there's an awareness of a coming to who I really am is the following. In fact, you find this language in the rabbinic tradition that when we think about the essence of a person being good, a person's a ben teira, a bas yisrael, right? A person's a, a bar mitzvah, b'nei mitzvah, a child of, right? On a genetic level of the goodness of the, of the commandments of. But when we think about somebody who is, let's say, has gone a little bit of astray, a little astray, we, uh, we call them a balavera. They've gotten really good at doing the wrong thing, but it's external. The essence of who they are is really kind of still. So I think for me, like it is. Like, Just to was, clarify that Baal again is like master. Like, yeah, it's like that master callback that yeah, you said thank before. You, sorry. And so everyone who's journeying towards being the, their most authentic and genuine version of themselves, I think for me at 17, trying to um, grapple with well, whether or not I'm willing to give up a certain kind of privilege and agency to do what I think in my heart is the right thing to do was actually the exact same sensation I had at 37, 20 years later, where again, I had to think about whether or not I was going to be willing to sacrifice for the truth as I saw it. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, that the pain of change often is precipitated by the realization that the pain of not changing is actually greater. 
working as an ally to the trans community, that's actually been, I think, the most generative perspective for me is to recognize the limitation I have around the awareness of my own gender identity, recognizing that I don't actually know what that lived experience is like um, and not being able to relate to it. My own exploration of identity and feeling in different moments, certainly when I was learning in the mirror and learning in Lake with the two largest issues in the world, it isn't necessarily a safe space to be out as a Valchuva, as somebody who wasn't raised that way, because people make assumptions about the capacity of a person's intellect or how well you could learn and getting study partners, etc. And so I did, after several years, tell my roommate that I wasn't raised observant, but uh, he wasn't feeling well. And I went to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription that he'd gotten from his doctor. And he looked at the uh, instructions. And if you've ever gotten medicine in Israel, it's like in 12 different languages, but isn't uh, English is not necessarily one of them. So he said, look, this is in Japanese. So I said, I, I took actually three years of Japanese in high school. Maybe I could help you. And he said, oh, well, Bittal Teru, why would you do that? What, what a waste of time and nullification of Teru. So I responded by saying, well, look, at the time I wasn't particular about you know these things. I wasn't really raised observant. And we had a custom that we were on a rotation. There's three of us in the room. Every Friday, one of us would light the Shabbos candle. So that Shabbos, it happened to be, that Friday happened to be my turn. And when I was getting ready to put it together, he said to me, do you know how to make the bracha? And for me, it was such an important moment to recognize that in actually telling someone else who I was, was a disservice to the authenticity of my identity, because I was someone who knew how to make a blessing on Shabbos candles. But by letting a person know a little bit about my story, it fed into their prejudices of what that means, the consequence of that knowledge. And at that moment, I really made a conscious choice not to really talk about it, because you rely on another person's kind of expansive capacity to understand that they don't know what it's like, and they don't fill that void with their own kind of assumptions. What's interesting about that situation is I could just as easily see somebody responding to that and being like, I'm going to make sure everybody knows exactly what my background is because I want to play a role in whatever in, in shifting the tides on this so that people like your friend wouldn't necessarily think to respond that way. But I also really respect your instinct of like, that's a lot of work to try and do. And like, I'd kind of rather just people respect me and think I'm a person that knows the blessing. Anyway, that's that's a, a dilemma that I think relates to the, the conversations we're having. So I want to name it towards the beginning of this conversation, like this is the only episode in this unit where all participants, the three of us, are not trans. And I think that's important to say. And it, it, it doesn't mean that this conversation is valueless. I actually think it's going to be and already is very good. But I think it means it's different. And I wanted to hear from you on that because you're in a role where you are not trans and you're doing work specifically serving those who are and thinking about Judaism through the lenses of those who are trans. And I'm curious, what has been moving for you in that role? I mean, I'm also curious just like on a basic level what the role is. But in addition to that, what has the learning process been for you? Because for us and for many of our listeners, we're not trans and we want to be thinking about our own processes of growing and learning about trans experiences as sort of outsiders to that experience. But what have you learned in that process? And like, to some extent, what are the limitations that you might face of being somebody who's cisgender, which is to say not trans, that's in a role that is serving folks who are trans? It's a great question. And it is always for me evolving. Being an ally is awkward. 
it's awkward because it's predicated on the world being broken and people being dehumanized. If people who are able to elevate the most pronounced identity of a human being is being created in the image of the divine, you wouldn't need to have allies. And uh, that the threshold to get it right is as elusive as it is aspirational. It's just not possible because of how personal the nature of this is. You know, for some people, putting your pronouns in the Zoom room and asking people, please put your pronouns is a sign of affirmation and validation and inclusivity. And I was on a in a conversation with a man of trans experience recently, and he said to me privately, I should probably put them up there. But the truth is, I spent a lot of money and had a lot of anguish to like not have to tell people who my pronouns are, what my pronouns are, because now I present as and having to put pronouns like actually removes that that identity. And so one of the things that I think is really encouraging about the awkwardness of allyship in society now is that it's shifted, that it is now, I think, more awkward for people to be silent than, than it is to kind of step into that place. And I wrote an article that allyship is not in heaven because we can, the person can look at the Torah and say, you know, how the, the measure says this, actually. The measure says what's the difference between a wise person and a foolish person. The fool walks into the study hall, looks at all the books, says uh, to themselves, look, there's no punctuation. There's no capitalization. It's a mixture between Hebrew and Aramaic. It's never going to happen. And so that's it. They leave. They don't start. The wise person says, yeah, but there's a finite number of chapters and words. I'll learn a little today. I'll learn a little tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll finish the entire thing. We can approach allyship the same way. Well, if, if we're going to wait to like be an expert, it's never going to happen. And even the language that we use to try to be uh, inclusive changes, I think, at a, at a speed that we've never experienced that quickly. And all of those are good things. So there are some principles about allyship, which I think everybody can learn. And there's a recording of Keshet's tutorial that was streamed live on Jewish Live. And you can find the recording where they spoke about how to be an ally and some of the, the, the tips and the tricks and the working mechanism. But I think in Hebrew, the tradition that we have is the word for ally is chaber. Chaber, we generally translate as friends, but really what it means is to attach oneself. An author is a mechaber. They attach words and thoughts. Uh, if something's attached to the ground, it's mechober the kairiko. It's attached to the ground. It, it gets its name uh, the Vav HaChibor, the, the letter Vav, which is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, it acts as the conjunction and gets its name from the hooks in the tabernacle, the Vav HaMishkan. And uh, that's really the idea of the ally. One connects oneself and the resources to the need. When we see ourselves as part of a whole, we need to take it personally that I'm not okay living in a society where this happens. And I think for me, part of the role that I have is to try to show within our tradition that these are not new observations, particularly around language. For example, the Hebrew Bible uses two different words for desire. The commentators describe when is one used and when is one is not used. One's about physicality, one's about spirituality. But it's not coincidental that when we see about violence against women in the Hebrew Bible, by Dina and Shechem, you find it by uh, by Esther, you find it also by the uh, going out to war. The, war. the word that's used is chafetz. Chafetz means the desire, but it is also... Uh, in Hebrew, the word for object. So there's a desire that is literally the objectification of a human being where you take away the, the spiritual component and then the person is just a shell. There's not a person there in the person's eyes and that's how violence is possible. So bringing awareness to these truths, which are part of the uh, of, of the wisdom of the, of the Jewish people is a huge part of the work of bridging the, the wisdom to the present day uh, need in order to give the Torah the ability to speak in present tense. My work more broadly in both interfaith and interdenominational spaces is around trans allyship. And then within the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox world, 
is uh, more expansive in LGBT plus issues. Can you say a little bit more just about your religious outlook and how you come at this, um, not sort of in spite of your orthodoxy, but through specifically the prism of religious observance that is your grounding? I identify as some version of religiously fundamentalist. Thinking about the Torah as being infinite, eternal, speaking to every generation in unique ways, and having its source on Sinai where God spoke to Moses. A consequence of that theology that works for me is that God had a conversation with Moses on Mount Sinai about LGBT inclusivity. And so for me, the pursuit is less about construction or creativity and more about uncovering and discovering. And we're creating the image of God. God doesn't have an image. God has gendered uh, attributes, but doesn't have a body. What does it say about gender-based spiritual practice? Um, I don't know that we have access to that information. And we certainly do not need to answer that question to know how to show up and to answer the urgent and already um, delayed response to how as a person supposed to be in relationship with God as self. It's also really difficult to ever articulate, I think, what is essentially masculine or what is essentially feminine. To convert in Judaism uh, as a man, it's the first halacha in the laws of conversion. You don't need to have any particular body parts. It's not body part specific. And even in egalitarian movements, there's still often a gender differential around matrilineal descent and a man of trans experience who gives birth, is that an affront to matrilineal descent? A woman who is of trans experience who's not circumcised and didn't have bottom surgery, does she require circumcision to, to convert into Judaism? So these are, are questions at the intersection of the way in which society assumed gender is represented by the physical body and the awareness of identity that has nothing to do with the physical body. When the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, the verse says, the entire nation saw the sounds. They experienced synesthesia. Most people on a good day are not seeing sounds. But the Torah wasn't just given for most people on a good day, for the average experience of those who find themselves in the, the majority. The Torah was given even for experiences that we can't relate to. In recognizing the spectrum and the fluidity, not just of society, but even within an individual and their own awareness of self and how much that is able to change from moment to moment. There's no one way to answer these questions, to substitute a halachic definition of gender for a social construction of gender does not advance the cause. To empower an individual with access to the tradition, to be able to take ownership and responsibility for who they are in relationship with God actually provides equity in that we are all responsible to ask the same question, which is, what does God want from me right now, who, the result of my unique life experiences? The only way that I can relate to those who say, Rabbi, you don't understand, I can't live like this, is to understand that there are all sorts of ways that I would refuse to live. Because Judaism asks that a life where one would have to deny the existence of God, in certain circumstances, our tradition says, that's not a life worth living. That's within our tradition, and we should never know from it. And um, there's something really powerful in the sensitivity of folks who are able to be aware of gender beyond their bodies, that people who don't 
have that sensitivity, have a very difficult time grasping. What do you mean? How do you know that you're a guy? How do you know that it's, you're a girl? It's different than I am. And as soon as you, you, you stray from those binaries, then it becomes that much harder to understand, like, what are you talking about? Where, where am I not? What am I not seeing? What am I not understanding to be able to, to see my own limitations in this? But I think that's the point. The Torah was given uh, in a way that's much more expansive than our experiences. And unfortunately, the language that we have will never be as expansive as the experience. It's one of the reasons why the Maral says that Moses was not able to speak properly. Because if you experience the divine in that way, how do you put that into words? I think if the point of departure is that God invites us to be in an intimate space as self, then the construction of the sanctuary is whatever form allows for that most authentic communion. I want to pursue and unpack a little bit about something that you said earlier, which I don't remember your exact words, but you said, you know, I I, I think it's fair to say that I'm some kind of religious fundamentalist, you yeah. know, and I, I want to actually uh, understand a little bit more about what that means and also separate the question of, and I don't know if this is what you exactly meant by a fundamentalism from the community that in in your particular case that you have been a part of, which is the ultra-Orthodox community. But I want to make it really clear that my question is not really about orthodoxy or ultra-Orthodoxy. It's really about the distinction between a community that has its norms and its ideologies and its expectations versus the source of all. And what I mean basically there is that I might take an attitude towards the Torah, meaning a particular text or the Talmud, where I have a certain set of beliefs that I believe that actually they are endlessly malleable and we can interpret them in all kinds of amazing ways. And I think that you might also share the same excitement about those interpretations, but believe that they've been there all along. It's part of the, it's part of Torah, right? It's really it's it's actually the proper understanding. Maybe the first time in three thousand years that we've actually understood this correctly. Either way, the question becomes the divergence between our ability to look at whether it's a text or the fundamental sources of our tradition and say, actually, we read something here that maybe nobody has noticed for three thousand years, and it's really there. But then you're part of this ultra-Orthodox community that basically just refuses to read it that way. And that has, and you know, we're all part, and I say that again, we're all part of communities that have just refused to read the text or the tradition in a particular way. And essentially my question is like, then what do you do? You know, you talked a little bit about the values, again, which I really share of us as individuals being called to understand this material for ourselves and own it for ourselves. And one of the reasons I'm most excited about the digital revolution, for example, is that I think it might actually finally give your average Jew on the street the capacity to one day do that. But the question is then what becomes the relationship of us as individual Jews who read these things in in a way that is is uh, out of step with our the community that we're trying to be part of and how they read it, and and then what do we do? Do we, you know, and I'm conscious of the fact that you, I mean, our, our listeners can't see you right now, but you're dressed in the dress of an ultra-Orthodox Jew, and yet you have found yourself put outside of that community. How do you think about all that? How do you square it? I find tremendous comfort in realizing that although my story is unique, and uh, this presents as like very new. This story of kind of an ongoing revelation is actually as old as the tear itself. 
in the times of Ruth, you could have asked any rabbi, is there a way that she can become Jewish? And they would have said, absolutely not. There's no such thing. In the time of, uh, and of course, we know that King David descends from her. In the time of Rebbe Yehuda Nasi, uh, who's the redactor of the Mishnah, there was a biblical prohibition to write down the oral law. And he realized that if we didn't write it down, it was going to be lost. And so we now have a Mishnah and we have a Gemara, which is the oral law written down. It can't be that we are more concerned with ideas being lost than we are about people being lost. To say that a person has to deny who they are, the essence of who they are, in order to be able, as a prerequisite to being in relationship with God, is, is the most unintelligent thing I can possibly imagine. The verse in, in Psalms that is actually on the door of CBST says, Evan Banu Hamasim that this, this, the stone that the builders thought was repulsive has now become the cornerstone. And what for me is powerful is that the stone didn't change. It's the same stone. So how is it the stone can go from being repulsive to being that which is the most precious? You have to look at it properly. You have to have the right perspective. And I think what's so encouraging about the time in which we live, and this is because of the sacrifice of all those who've come before, is that societies, that society is no longer seeing a queer or a gender queer identity as an intolerable deviancy the way it used to. It's shifted to tolerance and in many places, acceptance. And in some places, even in the ultra-Orthodox world, there are places where people have even celebrated their family members for being LGBT. That's the process of going from being seeing something as being intolerant to with intolerance to, to being able to celebrate it. I think the distance between intolerance and tolerance is much greater than tolerance and acceptance. And certainly from acceptance to, to celebration is, is a very tiny space. I hope that my position becomes unnecessary. And I think a lot about the planned obsolescence. If there is going to be a position, I, it should be with a, a person of trans experience. But I do see that we are at this unique space in part because it you know, marriage equality in this country is just a few years old. Stonewall is 51 years ago. The idea of being able to be out as is very new in this country and still in many places not safe. And of course, we have all sorts of horrific legislation that's coming to uh, to target the freedoms that have been acquired and, and set it back. But I do not believe that this is a tale of two cities. I think that this is the best it's ever been in the religious community. And I think the, the reason for that is that now most people know somebody of trans experience. Most people have someone in their families that's part of the LGBT community. So I think in the Haredi world, which I'm still a part of, I mean, I, I still go back to Lakewood. My, my mother lives there. Um, and I could get calls from Shivas and from Rabbonim, many looking to try to uh, find better ways of convincing the parents of queer kids not to send them to conversion therapy. And more and more people are recognizing that uh, asking somebody who's queer to marry straight will never end well. Um, and everybody loses in, in, in that equation. So I would say that it, it's happening. It's happening really quickly. And, I, and I'm really optimistic. I'm really optimistic. I have two little language things that have come up that I just want to highlight. One is that sort of progression you talked about and the ways in which the distinction between tolerance of and celebration of and acceptance of, like th those different words matter a lot. And from my perspective, the, the biggest step, maybe at the celebration stage, it's not only sort of other facing for cis people, it starts to be self-facing. It starts to be, oh, I don't only want to celebrate these people who aren't me. I actually want to think about what they teach me and how they change 
us, like our community, like how can my community that has defined itself around not trans people actually be different because of the contributions of these trans people, because we've recognized an element of truth of our world, um, to use your language, we've uncovered an ancient truth that has been there that now we can ourselves change. And And what I mean by that, just to flesh it out, is I'll give an example. Like I think a lot about questions of self-presentation. I am a, a cisgender man who wears a yarmulke in public. And now I also wear, I don't look orthodox to people who, like I wear, right now I'm wearing a t-shirt. Like I, I wear clothes that don't make me red as orthodox, but I do wear a yarmulke. I do have a beard most of the time. And I think I'm aware at almost all times subconsciously that even if people don't think I'm orthodox, they might think, they they might think I'm orthodox if they don't know the specific distinctions around what kinds of clothes people wear. And B, even if they don't think I'm like an orthodox Jew, they probably think I'm like conservative, lowercase c. Like, like they probably think I'm just sort of a person with values that are more similar to like traditionalists that they think of than like, I don't know, the left. So that's a long-winded thing. But basically what I'm saying is, I have sought to learn from trans people who have put more thought into questions of gender presentation and clothing and what that means. And so I think about somebody who's trans and in a much bigger way than what I'm describing needs to be seen by society in a set of ways that they might not be unless they take certain steps with their clothes. And I'm like, oh, that person has a whole lot to, to teach me with this sort of micro situation. And so I'm curious, do you have other examples where like you in this role have all of a sudden been like, wow, this issue I haven't thought about because I'm, I, Mike Moskowitz, am cisgender. Like this issue, this set of things that I haven't really thought about as being like a trans issue. I've just thought of it as like a thing I wrestle with. Actually, trans folks have so much wisdom here that sort of shines a light on it. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it almost... Uh links to, to what we were saying earlier about, you know, wanting to use the way in which one presents to, to kind of break down the prejudices and break down the assumptions that, you know, if you're wearing a yarmulke and it's a rally, don't assume that you're there as a counter protester to whatever the yeah. progressive thing is. I was actually actually once I was I got an award as a, like ally of the year from Jersey Pride and was there to, to speak and to receive this thing. And so a rabbi came up to me and uh, his congregants thought I was there as a counter-protest and wanted to call the police. In thinking more specifically about um, what I've learned, um, most of it actually centers around how relatable the trans experience is in helping to understand the God experience. Joy Layden has written extensively about this. But when we think about, uh, you know, the first of the Ten Commandments is uh, God letting us know who God is. I see the divine revelation as like God's coming out speech. And I feel like even 40 days later, when we had the sin of the golden calf, God's like, I don't understand. I told you who I am. Why? Like, why aren't you listening? And like, we'd force God back into the, to the closet. And in thinking about, you know, literally the Genesis, the very beginning, the Genesis narrative, that there was one person that was created, but Salam Kim in the image of God, and God uses plural pronouns for that person, right? So you have one person who's created that then gets split into the two binaries, but that doesn't mean to the exclusion of all the things along the spectrum. So in thinking about gender, if we think about it existing on a soul level, we're all different blends. 
and some of us it's there's there's more tension between uh, the surface and the things that we know on the inside. And for some people, there's just like a lack of awareness, and and all of that is fine. But I think when trying to understand why we have so many different words and names of God, and you know the way in which perhaps the most distinct way in which we're different from God is that God is one. All of the things that we know about God are all part of the same God. And by us, it's not that way. We occupy a physical and finite space. So when we think about the the dominant expression of who we are on the outside, it's often this to the exclusion of something else. I think it's actually an invitation to think more deeply about things working together, keeping their distinct identities, but becoming with greater harmony in the way in which God presents as all the things all the time, and also having all of these different ways of being identified. It almost seems to be, I think it is, part of the founding ideology of ultra-Orthodoxy to be separated from the rest of the Jewish community and certainly from the rest of the world. And although it's not really my intent to make this analogy directly, I mean, I think there are sort of interesting questions that can be raised here about binaries, you know, and that in a way, ultra-Orthodoxy was set up in the 19th century, you know, as a kind of adoption of a certain kind of a binary. And and I feel like as as someone who's not ultra-Orthodox, I feel almost, I feel very sad about that in the sense that I feel like the conversation that we just had, I learned so much from you. I, I got so many insights on uh, elements of the Torah or Torah that I might have read in a certain way or was struggling to find a way to read. And, and you gave me that way to read. And I can listen past a theology that I might not agree with but it's the nature of the relationship that just is is not there. And that is largely, in, in large part, by the in, initial setup of ultra-Orthodoxy. That was intentional. And I'm wondering what you see the future being, maybe driven by issues like LGBT and, and trans and maybe by other issues. And if that separation between ultra-Orthodoxy and other Jews breaks down, is it ultra-Orthodox anymore? You know, is, so in other words, is it really yeah. fundamentally a question about the future of ultra-Orthodoxy? And, and how can we have a different setup of the Jewish world where there can be people like you or people like, uh, that, that, like Abby Stein who, or Jericho Vincent or other people who leave ultra-Orthodoxy? I happen to just have named a bunch of trans folks, but um, but also Shalom Dean and people who leave ultra-Orthodoxy and just have so much to bring to to Judaism. But many of them want to leave Judaism altogether because they're, they're kind of done with it. They didn't like that kind of experience. And I'm just wondering if you dream of a better a better way, a better future and what, what that might look like. Yeah, I, I, I obsessively dream about it. We are all suffering from the trauma of religion. Uh, religion is overdue for a restoration. And right now, it's essentially reactionary. Uh, the misnagdim in, in reaction to the, to the chassidim, uh, conservative in reaction to the, to the reform movement, right? Orthodoxy. Right? So that's not a question of what does God want from me? That's a reaction to well, what is everybody doing? How is that wrong? And like, what can I do? So the, the, the ultra-Orthodox world, I don't know, found a date that was a good one, 1860 or so, and pushed pause. Not sure why that was such a great year, but there was a fear, particularly after World War II, there was a tremendous fear that, that the, the community, culture, tradition, purity was all going to be lost. We now have more people learning to than we have in the last 2,000 years. There's been a huge resurgence. And with that, I think comes or should at least come a certain amount of confidence that we don't have to be afraid. At the same time, the 
insular, kind of hermetically sealed boundaries of the Haredi world have never been more porous as they are now. With the internet, the ability to communicate and uh, have access to the outside world, in the Haredi world, it was people never had television sets, and there was never an excuse for it. So they were really able to kind of keep out the outside culture. But today, because of the role of internet within businesses, and there are other things which are helpful for being able to function, once you have access to the outside world, so then it's not hermetically sealed anymore. People who used to leave, like you said, it was a binary. You were in or out. It was a revolving door that didn't revolve. There was a way, there was an exit, and it was one way, and that was it. So, you know, you, you had 10, 12 kids, one left, two left. We joke in the queer community, there's one in every minion. And I think there just came a point where people were like, if they want to come back, okay, it's not every Shabbos, it's only during the week, it's once a month, it's only a yomtiv. Are we so afraid of what the outside world could bring in? And are we so insecure about what our world could do to the outside world? So it's been so inwardly facing. I think that's shifting. I think you see that in the way in which ultra-Orthodox Jews are getting involved in politics. I think you see that in the way in which that even kind of secular papers are hiring ultra-Orthodox writers. And there is kind of a, an assimilation, which is not bad. Um, we all come from a broken home now because the temple was destroyed. And when homes are destroyed, people take different resources and, and different pieces of furniture. So historically, the far left took Tikkun Olam. They took social justice. The far right took Limit Tayro. The far right took Learning Tayro. And everybody was deficient because you have people saying tzedek, 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 and that's the one verse of right, justice, justice, shall you pursue. And then you have a bunch of people who are learning Torah while people are have food insecurities and people are destroying the planet and all the things. And I think for the first time, the pendulum has swung so that, you know, the reform movement is no longer allergic to, to ritual in the same way. You have people queering mikvah and queering Talmud and reclaiming things that never intersected. So I think the vision is that reasonable people can disagree about a lot of things. Every page of the Talmud is filled with disagreements. But the love that we have for each other needs to be more powerful than in the ways in which the things that separate us are being hijacked as, as division. I'm really grateful that on our show, you said the sentence, I see myself as some kind of fundamentalist. I'm very grateful for that because I've already started thinking about it and I I think our listeners will be too because if fundamentalist, if that word did not have like existing connotations, if if I didn't know that fundamentalist was associated with right-wing people, I think I would like that term, right? Like I like fundamentals. I actually do want to think about the fundamentals of any particular project I'm a part of, any particular movement I'm a part of, any particular community I'm a part of. Like, I want to think about the foundations, the fundamentals, and then sort of draw conclusions from that. And I think that that instinct is a good instinct. Now, I disagree with almost all of the ways in which communities usually calling themselves fundamentalists, not the way you have, but the ways others, like the way that they do that. But I think it's so interesting to me because I've realized the word radical, which I use for myself all the time, it's the same concept. A radical mathematically is getting to the root, like a square root, or the reason it's radical, it could be like a cube root, it could be any kind of root, but it's getting to the fundamentals. It's getting to the the underlying root. Am I a fundamentalist in some ways that are different from how we talk about it generally? So I'm, I want to express that gratitude first. And on that front, though, I do want to close with a mixture of a question and a challenge, which is 
the reason why I don't like fundamentalist or as, as a term, but like what I hear in it is a draw towards building values on the old, on what was fundamental, on what's from a long time ago. And as much as I, you know, I'm now a rabbi and I have a deep connection to centuries upon centuries, millennia of Jewish things, I'll be the first one to say that like the way I live my life and where I draw my values right now, it is absolutely not that I am looking at the Torah and reading it and be like, ah, that's what I should do in my life. Like, no, that's not where I, like I get my values from all sorts of societal factors and from reading books that are not, you know, religious sources, whatever. And I, and I think that when our instinct is only, and now I'll get to the closing trans piece, when our instinct on trans inclusion is to say, ah, we can find this in Deuteronomy, we can reread Deuteronomy. We can find this in other texts of the Bible. We can find these liberatory, liberationist ideas in very old things, and they've been there. And like, surprise, people have been doing it wrong for a long time. I think that works for people that are kind of getting there already, that already are excited on some level to be doing, whether it's the inclusion work or the acceptance work. I don't know that it works for people who are neutral because there's also a million interpretations and a million ways to read those verses that are not in this liberationist mindset. And so my strategy tends to be, this is just the right thing. It's actually not about what texts say. The trans people are identifying themselves in very large numbers in our world, and they are telling us a truth. And it doesn't matter to me whether I can point to and say like, ah, this character you could sort of see as trans in this story, this idea. It's like they're here now. This is a truth now. And we need to respect that. And like, I'll, I'll draw quotes that I think support that, but I, I don't see it as like a picking and choosing or a randomness. I see it as it is fundamentally, there's the word important to treat people's experience as truth and to respect it whatever texts say. So my closing question challenge is, how do we do this not only in a way that's drawing on, you know, traditional source material, but how would you say that we could just look out at our world right now, notice needs that are there for trans, non-binary, genderqueer people, and whether we are part of those categories or not, serve progress on those fronts? It's a great question. I think the text have been what motivated me in this work because they do motivate me in my life. The insight provides an outlook. And I feel uniquely called to reclaim our tradition because of the ways in which these verses have been misused. Look, there are people who uh, are atheists and transphobic. There are people who are not fundamentalists and are homophobic. For those people, looking out into the world was not enough. And so I think there is a fundamentally a different conversation for people who, let's say, are ethical humanists. Person says, listen, I don't believe in any of it. I don't believe in a creator. We should try to make the world better. In that space, I think it's harder to argue, well, I think the world is better this way. Well, I think the world is better that way. If it's all subjective and whatever you believe is right, so then how do you prove anything? Once you're working in a framework where there's an absolute truth, either God exists, God doesn't exist, it's not going to be dependent on me. So I think in that way, there's it's a different template of a conversation. So you're right. We should all be good people. And I think not to ever argue the other side, but I think what people would argue is that I what I think is better for the world is the following. And then in that space of, well, this is what I think, this is what you think. So how do you how do you have that conversation? 
we live in a time of, of deep distortion of truth, uh, conspiracy theories. What do you say to somebody who doesn't, you know, thinks the world's flat? Okay. There is, I think, within the text, a tradition of this process. Our rabbis tell us that the ritual of Havdalah, the process of separation Saturday night from the Sabbath to the weekday, actually models, ironically, a framework of engagement. The Gemara says that the order, the Seder of Havdalah, was established in Yavne. Yavne was a city that had all sorts of scholars. Yavne is also an acronym for the order of the different parts of Havdalah. It starts with the Yud, that's the Yayin, the Summon, Ner, Havdalah, the wine, the spices, the, the candle, and then kind of the separation. And I heard an interpretation that before you make the Havdalah of the separation, you have to engage in all of these different fronts. The Yayin, let's, let's have a drink, the wine, let's, let's grab some coffee, let's, let's schmooze it out, let's try to connect in a social way to, to, to see the values of, you know, making this world better. If that doesn't work, Maybe come and take a look, you know, of the sweetness of this is what a society looks like that that, that adopts these postures of, of equality and inclusivity. And um, and if that doesn't work, you know, the, the nair, like the, the cerebral, the intellectual, like, you know, try to, to meet in the world of ideas about how this makes sense in, in an academic space. But if a person engages with somebody all the time and says, listen, you know, I'm going to vote for this person because even though the person's not a good person, the world that they want is the same world that I want. Okay. So this is about you. And justice is never about just us. We are not here for ourselves. We're here for the other. Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the modern Muslim movement, says that that another person's needs in this world is my ticket to the next world. That if a person says, I want this type of marriage because this is my marriage, as opposed to marriage equality because there are other types of marriages. So a person is in this world for themselves. And that is not a Jewish concept. Thank you so much. Mike Moskowitz for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. It was an honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages, all our social media handles at at Judaism Unbound on any of those applications. You can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, or you can email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, and you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.